Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. South Africa is on the verge of collapse. After years of corruption and mismanagement and poor investment, everything that once could have been a great state just now seems to have slipped from South Africa's grasp. And as the country's leaders try to get a hand on the impending disaster that is taking place inside of the country, the tensions are only getting worse inside of it. And all of this could perhaps be summed up by the tweets that were given by the finance minister of South Africa back on January 10th of this year. Quote, if you cannot affect deep structural economic reforms, then game over. Stay as you are and you are downgraded to junk status. The consequences are dire, your choice. Now, in these tweets, there was no direct person that was inherently being addressed at that time. But the message about it is obvious, considering the state that South Africa is in right now. Over the past decade, the economy of South Africa just continues to spiral into decline. The unemployment rate as it currently stands within the state is almost 33%, which is an eye-popping amount that only lends further trouble to the current crime spree that racks the entire country. Not even the years, but as the months and even days go by, South Africa is only falling further and further into decline. And to make matters worse, at one point in time, the country's once reliable and cheap electricity has now become arguably the single biggest threat to the entire nation's economy. The company that operates the nation's power, ESCOM, has struggled to keep the lights on for residents all across the country for months and now experiences constant blackouts. Plants across the country are breaking down and for every single one that falls, the electrical grid would become even more unstable. ESCOM authorities have now turned to enacting forced blackouts in order to try and prevent a total system collapse, which hits the economy even worse as businesses and households alike have now tried to scramble to obtain more expensive backup options, things like diesel engines or just risk staying in the dark. In December of this previous year, ESCOM was forced to shed so much power from the grid that even the vital mining operations, one of the largest contributors to the economy of South Africa, was forced to stop operations. And amongst all of the blackouts and problems that are happening, the government of South Africa has thrown billions of dollars at the problem trying to resolve it, but it's not working. And the reason for that is because it takes years to construct new power plants and the infrastructure needed to support them. It doesn't matter if a hundred new power plants are on the way. The problems that are being faced by everyday South Africans are affecting them harshly now, and there seems to be no way to resolve that. And the consequences of all of this are being felt far beyond the simple electrical issues that the country is facing. The country, as it's stands has now been downgraded to junk status in terms of investment. What that means is that investors that are looking into investing into different parts of the country, whether it be in the government, in infrastructure, or just general businesses, now see that it is less likely for them to be able to get their money's worth out of that investment. And with no outside capital or money flowing in, this just means that there is less development and activity that is going to happen, which in turn is going to only worsen the crisis within the country. The economic crisis within South Africa is only getting worse as 
ESCOM's electricity woes have sucked up billions of dollars worth of support and significant government attention. A lot of this money has not even gone towards building new infrastructure or anything like that to fix the current issues. It's instead had to go towards doing things like fixing the debt of ESCOM, which considering the lack of economic activity within the country is only something that makes things even worse for the taxpayers who are the ones who have to work in order to be able to support the company in the first place with their taxes. The people that now no longer really seem to have electricity half the time to be able to work to pay said taxes. You can see why that would probably be a problem. But as I said, the issue that we're seeing here is not just electricity. There is so much more than that. South Africa's infrastructure is effectively eroding across the board, whether it's their roads, their bridges, their rail lines, anything and everything is falling apart, including their water system. With the historic level droughts that they experienced back in 2019, this only means that in addition to all the other crises that they are currently facing, there's a severe possibility that a water crisis is going to be next. And then so you might look at this and wonder, well, what is going on with the everyday people? With the ever-worsening crime, with the weak economic growth, and also coupled with the collapsing infrastructure, this just means that the cost of living for the people inside of the country is only getting higher and things are becoming harder. And for the smaller percentage of the population inside of the country that are still making decent money, this is not something that they want to actually live with. No electricity, no water, no security as your store gets looted and burned down. The signs are already suggesting that for wealthier individuals within the country, that they're not going to stay, that they are planning to leave the country and take whatever wealth that they could with them. This means that South Africa is likely to be robbed of the brightest individuals within it, which, as each one leaves, is going to disproportionately hurt the others that are left behind. Huge sectors within the country, like high-tech, science, medicine, all of this is gradually going to disappear. And all of that means that as the wealthiest people leave the country and less stuff are being produced, then that means there is going to be ever greater budgetary shortfalls as the richest people who are paying the most taxes are going to be gone. But all of this is truly mind-boggling, because for anyone who is watching this right now, back in the year 1990, South Africa had the largest economy in all of Africa. But now, its nominal GDP is falling behind the rest on the continent. The huge lead that it enjoyed is now simply gone. Which then beggars the question, how did we get here? What happened to cause all of this? Well, in order to understand South Africa and its geopolitical position, what we are going to have to do is go back and look at its past. So if we go back in time, at the end of the 15th century, that was when the Portuguese were sailing past the Cape of Good Hope. However, it was not until 1652 that the Europeans would end up founding a colony in South Africa, and in 1652, the Dutch, led by Jan van Riebeek, would found a base where ships traveling to the Far East could then be supplied. From 1658 onward, the Dutch would then begin to import slaves into the region in order to be able to work the territory. It is also in the year 1658 then, then the first of many such wars would start to appear in the region as the Dutch would fight the natives. And this pretty much was the status for around 150 years. The natives were gradually driven from their land, many of them would die from smallpox, and this left a prominent Dutch colony in the region until the British would show up, as many things often go in history. The British really only got involved in South Africa in the year 1795. That is when the British would capture Cape Colony in South Africa, and they would hand it back to the Dutch before subsequently taking it back again a few years later. After a few years of this confusion, it wasn't until the year 1814 that a treaty was finally laid down which confirmed ownership of the land to be in the hands of the British. But for the Boers, the Dutch settlers that had been left behind that were now subjects of the British Empire, this just wasn't something that they could tolerate. And while in the beginning, for them, it wasn't necessarily so bad, it later would get significantly worse when the British would outlaw slavery in the year 1834, something that for these Dutch settlers was exceptionally important. 
So the Boers then began a mass migration away from the British in something that was called the Great Trek and would end up fighting a series of wars with the natives in order to establish their own land and from that would create two separate republics, one being the Orange Free State and the other state being that of Transvaal. In the 1850s, the British would then recognize the existence of these two states but would fairly quickly go and rescind this because of a certain discovery that would occur. See, South Africa as we know it today is very famous for its vast mineral wealth from gold, from diamonds, from these variety of things. And at the time here in the mid 1800s, that is when gold and diamond fields were discovered. And so increasingly as time passed, the British wanted control of all of South Africa to take this mineral wealth for the empire and incorporate it within the colony. In 1884, one of the native states of Lesotho would become a British protectorate. And then near 1894, the kingdom of Swaziland would also become a protectorate. Gradually, the varying native kingdoms and tribes and other people around them were incorporated as official protectorates of the empire at this point. Meanwhile, over the course of this time period, as all of this was happening, British settlers were gradually moving into Boer-controlled territory. Eventually, the situation would then reach a boiling point and war would break out between the two sides, and so you'd have the first and then subsequently the second Boer War. Although the Boers were initially successful in pushing the British out at this time, what followed was large amounts of British reinforcements that the Boers simply could not handle and had to turn to guerrilla tactics in order to fight. However, in order to then combat this, Kitchener, who was the British commander, would begin herding Boer women and children into concentration camps, where over this time period in conflict, more than 20,000 of them would perish. By no means was this a clean conflict, and the hatred and frustration felt by the Boer people after this conflict would carry forward for many years. Even if in 1902 they surrendered to the British, they never truly looked at the British as their friends. So it was then in the year 1910 that we had a united South Africa for the first time and it got its own constitution, thus becoming known as the Union of South Africa. But even if this entire thing was a union, for the people who were inside of the country, it was anything but united. This was a country in which only 15 to 20 percent of the population were of European descent, and yet they were the ones with 99.9 percent of all the power inside of the country. They were the ones who operated and controlled everything, and for the people inside of it, well, if you were black, colored, or Indian, then you were pretty much a second-class citizen. The majority of this non-white population would then live in tribal reserves, and laws that were passed in 1913 and 1936 prevented them from owning land outside of this territory. In addition to that, most people who were black then were not allowed to vote. Still, though, this didn't stop them from trying to organize somewhat politically, and so it was then in the year 1912 that the South African National Congress, later called the ANC, would form, though at this time they weren't necessarily able to do anything considering that they had no political authority or power whatsoever. The ANC then is going to be the subject of a lot of parts of this video which we're going to be talking about here later. Fast forward a couple years and in 1914 South Africa would join the First World War against Germany. That year there was a rebellion by the Boers which was crushed and in 1918 the Afrikaners which are the descendants of Dutch settlers would found a secret organization called the Broderbond or Brotherhood. Over the course of this time and for the next 30 years you you would gradually see more people within South Africa that were of Dutch or German descent that had a tendency to sympathize with Germany. And so it was then 
1939 that when South Africa joined the Second World War against Germany, a number of Afrikaners within the country would oppose this and not want to fight. But we all know how that went. Germany would lose World War II and South Africa, fighting for the Allies, would emerge on the victorious side. It was then after World War II in 1948 that the National Party would come to power in South Africa. This party is the one that would introduce a strict policy of apartheid or separateness. Essentially, whites and blacks were already segregated to a large degree, but now new laws were going to make that segregation significantly more harsh. The varying other peoples inside of the country would fight back, however, and in 1955, organizations representing black people, white people, colors, and Indians would form something called the Congress Alliance. In 1955, they would then adopt the Freedom Charter, but were overall divided with how they could actually operate or influence things within the country. And so it was then in 1958 that some black South Africans would break away from the ANC and form their own party, the Pan-Africanist Congress, or PAC, that was then led by Robert Sabukwe. Over the course of the 1960s and 1970s, then, things would only ramp up inside of the country. As in the year 1960, both the ANC and the PAC would plan demonstrations against the past laws, these being laws which would restrict the movement of black people within the country. And so on March 21st, 1960, Sabukwe would lead thousands of people in a demonstration. And it was then in the town of Sharpville that the police would open fire on the peaceful protesters, killing 69 of them. The government then subsequently after this would ban both the ANC and the PAC from operating. Only a few years later, in 1963, Nelson Mandela, one of the key figures that was trying to enact change within the country, was then arrested and sentenced to life in prison. It was around this time then that South Africa would actually become free as a country, something that had left the Commonwealth in 1961 to be its own state that was no longer tied to the British crown. Over the years after this, things were mostly quiet within South Africa, with the exception of, in 1966, the Prime Minister being assassinated. But still, things were significantly more quiet than they were in previous years. That is, of course, until the 1970s, when in 1976, the Soweto riots would occur. Rioting would begin in Soweto on the 16th of June, 1976, and over time, these would spread and continue all the way until 1977. It was the following year then, in 1978, that P.W. Botha would become prime minister. And this guy was an individual that was definitely determined to continue to use apartheid within South Africa. That was an institution that he stood by firmly. And so in 1983, he introduced a new constitution with a tricameral parliament, some Something which would allow for whites, coloreds, and Indians to operate, but no representation for blacks. But that all being said, even though this was arguably an improvement from earlier systems, which it really wasn't all that much of in the first place, it was something that didn't satisfy anyone, and so the protests and riots would continue over this time. Resistance against apartheid would grow, and by the year 1989, Botha was going to be forced out of office. Which then brings us to this guy, William de Klerk. This is the guy who in 1990 would pledge to end apartheid, and is also the person who would end up releasing Nelson Mandela. De Klerk would introduce a new constitution with rights for everyone. And the first democratic elections were subsequently held in the year 1994. And this was a huge watershed moment for South Africa. Nelson Mandela, the guy who had been arrested back in the 1960s and sentenced to life imprisonment, was now freed from prison and was able to achieve the presidency. And I don't think that I can exaggerate really just how big of a deal this was. Well, I say that, but at least symbolically. Over the course of Mandela's presidency, he is an individual who constantly would push for cohesion within South Africa, a uniting of the varying peoples, and not taking hostile action against the former oppressors of 
of the majority population within the country. And so socially, the country held on. Its economy continued to grow. Even if, as time passed, it continued to experience more stress, it is still something that was growing in a powerful state. As I said, in the year 1990, South Africa was the largest economy in all of Africa. But over the course of the 1990s, the party that Nelson Mandela was a part of, the ANC, would take complete control of the country. And from this, we would gradually start to see cronyism within the party becoming more and more prominent to the detriment of the country itself. To be fair, the cronyism that we were going to see during this time period was not nearly to the same level that we would see later. For so long as Mandela was in charge of the country, his force of personality and morals was something that mostly would keep the country on track. But once Mandela was then out of the picture, things would gradually start to degrade. And if you're wondering how this happens, well, we're going to explain it. But before I do, I want to stress to all of you that are watching that this is not a social commentary channel. This is a history channel that first and foremost is going to tell the story of what happened. So I'm going to ask that as I explain these events, that for the people who are going to give some nasty or snarky comments in the comment section, to please keep these to yourself and be respectful. This is something that could effectively occur to just about any country on this earth, depending upon the circumstances that create it. You see, after years and years of being on the sidelines, South Africa's new majority black government would attempt over this time period to try and redress historic racial injustices by increasing the diversity profile in both government and the private sector sector job markets. The majority of people within the country had been locked out of its economic and political growth for the longest time, and now the government wanted to address that and boost its population to a higher level in support that they didn't have previously. So it was then in 1996 that the GEAR plan was enacted, this standing for the Growth, Employment, and Redistribution Plan. It was then followed by the BEE, the Black Economic Empowerment Act, and finally by 2003, this would be supercharged with the B. BBBEE, the Broad-Based Black Economic Empowerment Act. This was something that was going to move beyond mere race focus and also move into aspects of gender equality. So, okay, I've listed off all of these acronyms, but what exactly does this mean? What did all of this do? When we were talking about black economic empowerment, the original goal of this plan was to transform the South African economy by enhancing the participation of black people, to put them into positions where before they never had any kind of access in order to further the economic development of the country. In doing this, it hoped to erase the systemic racist inequities that had built up gradually over the course of the centuries and provide at least a degree of equality among its people. As I already explained when talking about the history of all this, it does make sense. Before 1994, the economic opportunities that were available for the small white minority within the country, this was something that in almost all cases was denied to African people. And so this policy was set out in order to address these historical imbalances in all spheres, both for the economy and also to fix things within society. And the initiative that we're talking about here was exceptionally wide-ranging. It included employment equity, skills development and preferential procurement, and another aspect was enterprise development in terms of ownership and management representation. The goal, as I said, was to involve black African people into their own economy to boost their presence and give them some degree of economic power. And in this way, the goal of the plan was to fix the issues that were facing black people the most. Unemployment, economic stagnation, poverty, all of these things. It wasn't just going to benefit the elite, it was specifically something meant for the people. But unfortunately, when we are talking about things in history, usually things are not exactly so clean. And when talking about black economic empowerment, there was a very unfortunate flip side. You see, the requirements of these programs to specifically support black Africans were co-opted over the years and abused by aspects of the government. What would essentially 
likely happen is that the government of South Africa would have something like a contract for work, something that needed to be done within the state. And whether this was purchasing a certain number or type of a good, uh, fixing a road, or any other thing that needed to be done for the government, there was always a contract that normally a government would try and get the best mix of both quality and price out of, or at least they should. That's what they were supposed to do. But this didn't really happen in South Africa. You see, what ended up happening is that the contracts for these services ended up being improperly awarded. Oftentimes, they would be given to groups or people that were politically connected or related to the individuals that were in charge within the government, and they were given these contracts at severely raised prices. But not only were the prices that they were paying for these goods much higher than they should have been in the first place, but simultaneously, the quality that they were getting out of them was oftentimes significantly reduced. Oftentimes, when talking about this, this would then tie into another type of corruption called state capture, as this was the perfect kind of environment for this to take place in. And I'll explain what it is that I mean. I'm sure that for anyone who is watching this right now who is more familiar with a lot of the American terms in terms of politics, like lobbyists, among other things, that you're probably familiar with what it is that I am talking about. You see, state capture is a type of systemic political corruption in which private interests significantly influence a state's decision-making process to their own advantage. And this is something that over the years would become extremely prevalent within South Africa, particularly after Jacob Zuma would take over as president, something which we're going to be covering here in a second with the just sheer amount of corruption that occurs in this thing. And I'm going to go ahead and explain this with an example so that people understand what it is that I am talking about and can kind of visualize this. Basically, I want you all to imagine that the government of South Africa wants a road to be built, and so they go ahead and they issue a contract for this. Half a dozen companies go in and they offer the rate of around a million dollars, but one of the companies offers a rate of $2.1 million, something that is over double the rate of what everyone else is offering, but they have one key advantage. The CEO of that company decides that, hey, I am going to offer a $100,000 bribe to the person that is choosing which company gets selected. After offering that politician $100,000, which they then accept, that means that they have now been awarded a contract for in Instead of $1 million, they are getting it for a profit of $2 million, which is then, of course, going to lead to significant amounts of government waste. Over the course of the 1990s and onwards, this would be a common sight in South Africa, and it would only get worse as time would go on and the state would become more and more corrupt. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. 
Every week we tackle fascinating topics. We go back to source materials in their original languages. And we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. Another form of corruption that is related to this is BEE fronting, which is an abuse of the rules governing BEE, where qualifying persons are given a seat on the board of a company while having no actual decision-making power in that company in order to qualify the company for government contracts in terms of BEE. Basically, what this is, is tokenism in order to gain contracts. If you had a company that the entire board of directors inside of it was white, meaning that they would not be able to get contracts with the government to do certain works because of BEE legislation, they would go and create a random position that doesn't have any actual power on the board of directors and fill that with a person who is African, who is black. Create a certain number of these positions to change the demographics of your company, even if it actually gives them no real power or pay or anything for that matter. And on paper, it looks like the company has diversified its workforce in order to be able to do more for the people. But no, that is not the case. What instead has happened is that the company has only diversified its workforce in order to be able to qualify for government contracts that it then bribes the government in order to be able to get. In June of 2017, a company by the name of Netcare which operates the largest private hospital network in South Africa, it was accused of BEE fronting. And since that point, there have been many other companies that have been accused of doing the same thing, all in a desperate bid in order to try and get more government work in an economy that continues to flag. And what I am talking about here with this degree of cronyism and tokenism is only something that is in the private sector that we've talked about so far. We haven't even gotten into the government aspect. Another type of corruption that is rampant within South Africa, and we see a lot here, is cadre deployment and employment, which, mind you, is an official policy of the ANC, something that they actively do, but don't don't see it as corruption in an effort to try and shore themselves up politically. Essentially, all that this means is that if there is an open position for some kind of job within the government, then the government is going to try and fill that position with a person that is loyal to the government, which on paper does kind of make sense. Obviously, you want someone that is going to work for you within the government, but it means that they are completely disregarding their actual skill, ability, qualifications, or anything like that. The only thing that actually matters is whether or not they are loyal. And the finest example that I could probably bring up of this type of corruption is the scandal that surrounded former arts and culture minister Paulo Jordan, because it was established in the year 2014 that this guy had no actual qualifications for his job in the first place. He didn't just lie about having a PhD, despite being referred to as Dr. Jordan during this time period. He simultaneously lied about having any college degree whatsoever. He had no tertiary education. A report in South Africa's Sunday Times newspaper when this came out said that the investigation found that the ANC veteran had no degrees or diplomas from the University of Wisconsin-Madison or the London School of Economics, both things that he had put onto his CV. He had nothing, and there are so many more individuals like him within the government that were specifically awarded positions out of loyalty or for favors. The unfortunate reality is that by the time that the presidency had passed from Nelson Mandela to his successors, cronyism was the norm within the ANC and was only getting worse with time. Merit and actual competency within South Africa were completely disregarded. It just didn't really matter. And the resulting infection of this would spread like wildfire, not just among the government, but among the general population and 
into everyday services that were used by regular people. Which is really sad, because when we look at the history of South Africa, when we see everything that was going on during apartheid and the horrible oppression that was occurring in it, the post-apartheid period was characterized by high expectations. People genuinely believed that things were going to be getting significantly better, and in many parts of it, considering social equality, they did. But with the transition to majority rule, the country wanted to give the people within that country, the majority of it, that had been excluded from economic activity before, their own chance at equality and self-improvement. The original goal was to support all South Africans. It should have been the start of a grand new better economy. But after arguably peaking in the mid-2000s, the economy would encounter challenges and setbacks and gradually begin to falter. These were then accompanied by major corruption scandals and perceptions that the regime that was in charge didn't actually care about fulfilling any of the promises that they had given in the previous years. And so it was then in the year 2008 that after nine years in power, during which the economy would grow on average around 4.2% annually, that President Thabo Mbeki would resign at the request of the National Committee of the ANC, a decision that was then subsequently ratified by the National Assembly, where the party held a two-thirds majority. The removal of the president would illustrate a lot of the tensions that were ongoing at the time. The transition between the previous years of Nelson Mandela, who promoted racial reconciliation, with a more populist faction led by Jacob Zuma that advocated for more radical economic development. It was then under President Zuma that the country of South Africa would face its first ever economic recession since the apartheid era. With the reason why all of this happening being a number of external factors, unsound economic policies and decisions that had been made at the time, and also, as I have listed previously, high levels of corruption, which were only going to be getting significantly worse. Like, remember everything that I had already listed here previously in the video? Yeah, all of those things are about to happen on a much greater scale and more frequency, and everything was about to go downhill. Over the course of President Zuma's entire time as office, his rule was something that was marked by controversy and constant accusations of corruption. Zuma's resignation on February 14th, 2018, would come after months and months of pressure from the ANC to get him to step down. And in April of 2018, it was announced that Zuma would be prosecuted on 12 different counts of fraud, one of racketeering, two accounts of corruption, and one of money laundering. The man that you can see behind me here did an incredible amount, and I say that in the worst way possible. Not incredible as in a great good or moral thing, just holy crap, the amount of corruption that this guy got involved with is staggering. And I'm going to list some of that here. Oh, hello, Cat. Are you making yourself at home? Good, because we're going to be talking about a home here first. The first thing that we're going to be talking about here is the Nikandla Homestead Scandal, this being the event that involved the funding of President Zuma's personal home at the expense of the public after that home was broken into. During this time, President Zuma, naturally worried about someone breaking into his home, had asked for funding in order to be able to increase security measures for the house. So, okay, yeah, completely understandable. That did happen, sure. But in addition to doing things like, you know, adding security and whatnot, a report by South Africa's public protector in 2014 found that Zuma had inappropriate allocated state funds in order to finance additional home improvements, such as doing things like adding a swimming pool, adding an amphitheater, a visitor center, and even a cattle enclosure to his property. And this is only some of the stuff that he did with that money. This would all come out in the year 2018, when the highest court in South Africa would find Mr. Zuma guilty of stealing over $19 million worth of money from 
from the government in order to be able to fund these expansions for his house. And that, mind you, is just his personal house. He did a lot more to help corrupt the entire state. And among all of the corrupt deals and packages and things that he was involved in, easily one of the biggest was an arms deal back in the 90s that would haunt him for years afterwards. The arms deal, known as the Strategic Defense Package, was a billion-dollar deal involving arms acquisitions from varying countries, such as Germany and France. This arms deal set a precedent for cases of large-scale corruption and high levels of bribery, as well as embezzlement inside of the African National Congress, because it was just simply that big. The way that all of this went down is that the alleged corruption associated with the package was meant to give each bidder for the deal an advantage in the requirement setting and tender processes. The original offer that BAE gave for fighter and trainer aircraft, the Hawk and the Saab Gripen, were originally terminated back in March of 1997 on the cost of it was just simply way too expensive. Makes sense. But for whatever reason, these aircraft became viable again after a controversial revision of the requirements later that summer, as one of the guys who was in charge of overseeing the entire project, Joe Modice, who died in 2001, unilaterally decided that no, cost was no longer going to be a factor in securing these, uh, these planes. Which, ultimately, was then awarded to BAE Systems and Saab for the Gripen Fighter aircraft and the Hawk Trainer. The bribes that they gave in order to be able to get that selection allegedly came in cash, gifts, and preferential selection of industrial partners. In total, President Zuma was accused of accepting 783 illegal payments. In April of 2018, two months after resigning from office, Zuma was then charged before a national jury. But if that wasn't bad enough, prior to him being arrested, Zuma had warned people, threatened them even, that if he was arrested, that this would result in nationwide riots, which is exactly what would occur. Even with all of the economic issues that South Africa was facing, people still decided to go out into the streets and his supporters would ravage things along the countryside. If you all remember any of the videos of looting and burning and everything that was going on in South Africa back in 2021, this is what we are talking about here. But finally, and perhaps what was easily the largest of all of the things that he did was the Gupta family scandal. A number of people who are probably watching this are not aware of who exactly the Gupta brothers are, so I will go ahead and explain that. But these are individuals who were major players in South Africa and involved in a variety of different industries. These were the mega billionaires of South Africa that exuded an incredible amount of influence upon society and its government. And so the Gupta brothers had been able to develop a relationship with Zuma since around 2003 when he occupied the office of deputy president. And since 2003, when they had met and started to develop that relationship, it was going to be something that was going to be mutually beneficial for both parties. The basic gist of it was that the Gupta family was going to finance the Zuma family, while President Zuma would appoint friendly officials that would look the other way if the Guptas were going to be doing anything wrong, and also award lucrative state contracts, as we talked about previously in this video, specifically to the Gupta family. They were the biggest benefactors among all the different groups that were involved in this corruption. In fact, one of the things that they would do is that the son of Jacob Zuma, Duduzane, and also one of his wives, Ngeme Zuma, would end up receiving large transfers of money from the Gupta family and would be employed in high-level positions within the company that didn't necessarily do anything, but they got paid for being there. The Gupta family over the years would be engaged in all kinds of different aspects of business, many of which were rather suspicious in their transactions and would involve a series of shell companies and state-owned enterprises. When you look at many of the state-controlled companies like Transnet and 
and Escom and things like this. These are the companies that are usually involved in these types of scandals as everything was involved within the state. It is estimated by the South African government that with the relationship between the Guptas and the Zuma family, that approximately 4 billion US dollars ended up being siphoned away for grand projects or other activities that didn't need to be done. That is $4 billion worth of corruption flushed down the drain. The amount is simply staggering. But hey, even though this is the president, this is still one guy, right? Well, that is what I've been trying to explain over the course of this video. The fall of South Africa is tied to corruption, not just at the highest level. It is something that is woven into the very fabric of society. Back in the year 1995, senior ANC member Winnie Mandela, the wife of Nelson Mandela, the hero of South Africa, she was accused of accepting a $20,000 bribe from a building contracting company so that they could secure government tenders in order to build public housing. In the year 2004, there was the Oilgate scandal, which involved the transfer of 11 million rand from the state-owned Petro SA to the ANC in order to help fund its re-election campaign in the run-up to the 2004 elections. There was actually a newspaper at this time called the Mail and Guardian that ended up being gagged by the government when after the election and they found this out, they tried to run a story on it and were stopped by the government. Another ANC politician by the name of Tony Yageni was the ANC's chief parliamentary whip who was found guilty of fraud in the year 2005 after Yageni received a large discount from a company on a luxury car purchase because that company had been currently bidding for a government contract. Oh yeah, and do you all remember when South Africa hosted the World Cup back in the year 2010 and wondered why did that happen in the first place? Well, it seems that one of the things that went down is that former South African president Mbeki and Sepp Blatter, who's the head of FIFA, had agreed to a $10 million deal in the year 2007, which US prosecutors say was actually a bribe in order to secure FIFA in the first place. In another story of corruption, there was a government contractor by the name of Bosasa that was found to have been giving senior ANC members bribes in order to secure lucrative government contracts and avoid investigation. But after the scandal was exposed and the company entered voluntary liquidation in 2019, the CEO, Gavin Watson, ended up dying in circumstances that were mysterious, to say the least. Then in 2023, this year, two of the company's court-appointed liquidators were shot dead in a suspected assassination that was allegedly connected to their work in tracing Bosasa's finances. And that is only some of the examples that I am bringing up right now. If I really wanted to do a deep dive on just like the corruption within the ANC and that's it and not talk about any of the other aspects within society, then this video, if I continued down that path, would probably continue for another three or four hours at least. And even then, I would only be scratching the surface of this. Corruption is everywhere in South Africa, from the highest level down to the lowest level. It is just a part of life. Even on the lowest level of society, some police officers have to be bribed in order to be able to do their jobs in the first place. And if the people can't afford to pay the bribe to the police officer to protect them or help arrest the criminal, then what simply happens is that the criminal pays the police officer to not do their job. Either way, the police officer in there is making more money. And that whole situation would be bad if the rest of the country even was working in the first place, but it's really not. Not with all the power outages that they're experiencing. The state-owned national power utility of Exxon has experienced numerous corruption scandals since the start of the South African energy crisis back in 2008. And this has only gotten worse over time, especially from 2019 onwards. The issues that the company faces range from theft of diesel that is needed for people's backup generators, providing substandard coal that is needed in order to fuel the power plants in the first place, 
people breaking into the power plants in order to take off pieces of their equipment to sell for scrap metal. Or even if they're not taking the pieces in order to sell, one of the things that people are doing is breaking into the company and actually breaking parts of the company's infrastructure in order for a repair company to then come by and be able to repair it for them for an exorbitant price. Like, forget the contracts of anything that we were talking about earlier that were occurring naturally. You have repair companies going into the facility to break aspects of it so that they can be paid to go and repair it. The guy who was CEO of Exxon at the time, Andre de Reuter, would controversially state in a public interview that four criminal syndicates had managed to establish themselves within ESCOM and that corruption was costing the utility company approximately a billion rand a month which is the equivalent of around $54 million, and that a senior ANC MP was involved in the entire thing and there was nothing that they could do. DeRoyter went on to say that load shedding, the current rolling blackouts that are experiencing across the country, this is, to a large extent, something that is the responsibility of the crime and corruption that has taken over the country. And all of this, everything that I have mentioned here so far, has not even mentioned COVID-19, something that really is a big factor as to why the company has slipped so hard so quickly since 2019. South Africa had gone and declared a state of national disaster due to the COVID-19 pandemic, instituting a nationwide lockdown on the 26th of March 2020. At the time that all of this happened, the sale of goods and services that were classified as non-essential, such as tobacco and liquor and other items, were prohibited. There was nothing that they could do in order to obtain or sell any of these, leading to widespread concerns about viability, job losses, or any of the investments that people had actually given into those industries in the first place. Every Everything went up in the air. And remember when we were talking about that whole thing with black economic empowerment? The issue was when COVID-19 broke out is that this is something that though it affected everyone, it did not affect everyone equally. That's just not the case. You see, for the people who were managers or professionals or anything like that, the people that, generally speaking, were able to work more remotely, this wasn't necessarily going to be a problem. But in a place like South Africa, which has a very large mining and retail and other sectors where the work zones are more dense, this was going to be a very bad thing because transmission could occur there so much more easily and in general then had to be shut down. And so survey data of the time suggested that traditionally the more vulnerable groups that would have been working these, the black, the youth, the less educated, these were the individuals that were going to be affected significantly more from the crisis, and from that were going to suffer significantly more in the economy. And if you remember how over the course of this video we've talked a lot about corruption and how bad it is within South Africa, when PPE, the personal protective equipment, became significantly more valuable and necessary and needed by the state, then this naturally meant that there were going to be a lot of grifters who would come in and upcharge everything in order to try and make as much money as possible. Meaning that when COVID-19 broke out, not only was it something that slowed down the economy and hurt everyone, but simultaneously there were individuals that were able to get even more lucrative contracts to provide things for hospitals as well as the government. So for the majority of people that were inside of South Africa, everything sucked at this time. But if you were a party member or a friend of the ANC, well, everything went significantly better for you in that time. The whole situation is really not good. As for where we are today and what all of this means, well, newly released data shows that the South African economy grew by only 0.4% between January and March this year. And when you combine that with all of the crippling power cuts, the volatile commodity prices, and everything else that the country and its people are facing, this does not paint a pretty picture for the future. By the end of the year, it's actually estimated that the GDP within South Africa is going to drop, that it's not going to experience any growth at all. The pace of growth simply cannot keep up with inflation 
or job loss or anything else that is occurring within the country, as now, as I said, 33% of the country's people are now unemployed. From there, it's really hard to see how the country could possibly improve because everything kind of becomes its own self-repeating prophecy. The country has faced numerous rolling blackouts after years of mismanagement from the state-owned utility service of ESCOM, which has now prompted the authorities to ease the registration process and licensing requirements for energy production in order to try and encourage private sector investment. The government has also announced a three-year debt relief arrangement in order to try and help ESCOM establish its commercial viability and mitigate the energy crisis. But the problem is, is that that solution, while seemingly good at first, is not something that could potentially take effect for years. It is not something that is simply going to be fixed in the year 2023, and from that, maybe not even in 2024. The more blackouts that you have means the less productive workspaces you have. The less productive workspaces that you have means that you're going to end up having a slower economy. A slower economy means that there is going to be less money for services like electricity that are needed to run the country in the first place, which means more blackouts. You can likely see at that point as I'm explaining it as to why it's a repeating cycle that will send you in a downward spiral towards oblivion. Where South Africa is going to go from here, I don't really know. I cannot say. But that is the story of why South Africa is collapsing. Everyone, this has been Stakui with the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel. Thank you very much for watching. I appreciate all of you, and I ask that you like, comment, and subscribe. And let me know in the comment section below what it is that we should do next. This took a awful long amount of time to research, to write, and to prepare. And from this, edit and create. So any kind of interaction that you all give in this to help the video and the algorithm is something that I greatly appreciate, and I am eternally grateful to all of you. I'm definitely going to be putting out more polls onto my community page in order to check and see what it is that you guys would like to do a deep dive into next because I really like diving into all this stuff for geopolitics and its history and what created the issues that we're seeing in the world here today. So thank you, all of you, for your support. And I will see you next time. Goodbye, everyone. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.